0: to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck.
1: I'm Kemper Donovan.
0: And this week, we are so delighted to have both the New York Times now bestselling author and the Sunday Times, as in the London Times also, best-selling author Sarah Pearson. We recorded this interview some time ago. We recorded it at the beginning of February, but we wanted to hold it um, so that all of you got a chance to actually pick up her brand new book. It's a debut novel. It's called *The Sanatorium*, and it's very much a sort of Christie-esque locked um, hotel mystery
1: (laughs) locked building mystery Yeah, yeah
0: i know and we were we were delighted to talk to her
1: we really were and if any of you have not yet picked it up if there are any of you left we encourage you to do so especially if you would like to before our conversation which is going to start right now
0: So we are here with Sarah Pierce, and um, we had such a great time reading uh, her brand new book, The Sanatorium, and um, it's available to our UK listeners and to our US listeners, so this is not something we're you know, sometimes we do interviews where people have to wait months in advance. Uh, this is not one of those cases. Everybody should just go out and buy it because, uh, you know, what do we love more, Kemper, than, you know, mysterious murder sprees in snowy, isolated settings? It's, it's, it's a real sweet spot for us.
1: 100%.
0: So um, we were delighted to read it. I think that our listeners will also devour this. And um, we're so excited that you're here to talk about it, Sarah.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: And um we're obviously going to shoe in Agatha Christie into this because you know it's sort of our raison d'etre But <laughs>
2: that's, what <we> <laughs> <laughs> that's what you do. That's what you do.
0: But um you know just to uh start it off, why don't you tell us a little bit about like how you came to write a mystery generally. Because, you know, I mean, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the first thing people always go to. So, uh, you know, we always like to uh, find out about why people approach mystery as a their
2: act of writing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I actually started off writing short stories. Um, and yeah, when it came to sort of writing the novel, I obviously had the idea for the plot came to me after reading an article. But the actual sort of whole mystery idea is really something that I love to read. So I think as a writer, you do tend to want to create the sort of moments as a reader that you've enjoyed the most. And I would probably say my go-to books are mysteries and thrillers. So I love the whole um, sense of kind of finality, You get the really good mystery, the beginning, a middle and an end, and also sort of following along with the detective. Um, and so... As an author, that was a huge sort of challenge and an inspiration to me. Um, I really loved the idea of trying to set about writing my own. So when I kind of got the setting for the book, um, and that came to me sort of straight away, it lent itself, I thought, to the mystery. So it was quite an easy choice in a way.
1: I'm curious, who would you say um, your, you know, the most formative authors were for you um, as a reader and and also as a writer? And I think sometimes it's a different answer <laughs> for those two. <laughs> yeah. All writers are big readers, obviously, so um it sounds like you were you know you've you've been a long time mystery fan who who did you read growing up, and who would you say influenced you the most when you were writing this mystery specifically
2: yeah, it's probably a sort of huge range actually, both everything from sort of mystery writers to everything outside of the genre so growing up, I loved everything, probably like a lot of children. I loved everything Enid Blyton, so I loved and I think it it obviously there's mystery there, but I think there's that sense of adventure. And I think people have asked the question before about, you know, are those sort of early years really formative in reading? And I think they are as a writer. I think everything, Enid Blyton for me and anything in the mystery genre reading, really, funny enough, I read a lot of sort of Nancy Drews and that kind of thing. And I think everything where you have that real sense of adventure and as I say, you're going on a journey as a reader is, is something that I loved. I love that sense of something bubbling beneath the surface of kind of everyday life. And I remember being hugely disappointed disappointed though as a child that there wasn't mysteries like in The Secret Seven and The Famous Five where there are mysteries at kind of every street corner and you can't go out and catch the baddie. (laughs) Um, So yeah I'd say those sort of formative years but uh, one of the writers now who I find hugely inspiring, I love Joe Nesbo. So I love his Harry Hula series. I don't know if it's something you've read a lot of, either okay. of you. But yeah, I, I love I love his books. I really like the kind of very realistic He's characters. Scared.
0: I have to say, Sarah, they terrify me though. They scare
2: <laughs> <just> terrify <laughs> me. <laughs> Yeah, that's a sense actually a little bit sort of inspirational for me in that sense. A few people have said, oh, there's sort of scenes in the book which can be, you know, very, very scary. And I suppose I think perhaps I err on the side of suggestion rather than kind of outright gore or murder. But yeah, I do love in his book his books, that sense of sort of looking over the shoulder that you get. But I also like the kind of very flawed central character you have in Harry Hula, who I, yeah, who I just love. But also Agatha Christie. I grow up, I mean, it's a huge thing where I live, um, simply because her childhood home is kind of just a few minutes away. (laughs) Um, It's been demolished now, but her holiday home is still there and a huge attraction. So yeah, we grew up kind of steeped watching a lot of Agatha Christie and hearing a lot about her. So, yeah, huge inspiration. Another author I'd say I I also really love for her kind of descriptions of the natural world is an author called Michelle Paver, and she's written a few great um, ghost stories which I love, and also Sarah Waters, um, who kind of yeah has written one book which has been really influential called The Little Stranger, oh, that's where. True. Yeah, yeah, where the house becomes a huge character. So when I was kind of writing, that was very inspirational for creating my hotel Le Somme. I
1: love I love The Little Stranger. I love all of Sarah Waters's uh <laughs> yeah, I do, yeah. She's so fantastic.
2: Yeah, amazing. Just every sentence is so honed. I'm just yeah, hugely admire her. She has a
0: real um quality of the like Victorian in her, despite yeah. being a contemporary author. So I think it's like an amazing feat that she sometimes pulls off in those books.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you have that sense of timeless. I think someone could read the book in a hundred years from now and it and it doesn't date at all. It's yeah, wonderful.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because yeah. she set one of them even in Victorian times. And I remember thinking, wow, this is really convincing in a way that it almost never is. It's it's actually yeah, so absolutely. hard to do that. Good point.
2: Yeah, I think I think that some of the, my most memorable books are ones where even if they're set in the present day, they've got kind of a sense of nostalgia of something you met, remember from your own childhood, or yeah, or even just think about in the present day. Tessa Hadley is someone who I just absolutely love, and she's written a book called The Past, and it kind of makes me feel nostalgic for a time I didn't even live in which is amazing
0: (laughs) no we um my one of my best friends um one of my childhood best friends and I went through a real Tessa Hadley phase I think last year which is uh, probably odd for Americans um yeah um yeah we we read a bunch of them last before the pandemic, we, I think I read like four of them.
2: You did a binge.
1: It's so funny. We've never even talked about, it. I don't understand how this never came up on this podcast, Catherine. I am obsessed with Tessa Hadley. I yeah.
2: Gosh, I, actually, I have found my spiritual Sarah, hope. Sarah, Sarah, Seriously.
1: you're bringing
0: us together in a way, we spend so much time together, Camper and I, and somehow you're bringing us together in a way that we could not have anticipated. Yeah. Have, and in
2: you a way read, that, have you read The Past? Because the, I'm literally, it's the book I I have read and reread. I just, oh, it's kind of dreamlike moments, her description of kind of nature and just, oh yeah, it's amazing.
1: The Past is gorgeous. It's really funny. Um, I think some American listeners, uh might appreciate actually the way that I think of Tessa Hadley, which is that she's one of the only writers who, when a short story of hers is published in the New Yorker, I actually like it and enjoy it. (laughs) The New Yorker short story, the New Yorker fiction, I went through a a period of several years where I was like, I'm going to read, I'm going to read this short story in every single issue. I'm just going to do it because I'm going (laughs) to learn a lot. And what I learned is that I hated 95% of them <laughs> and I so barely ever read the fiction uh, in now, but Tessa Hadley without fail and it would often be an excerpt from her book. And that's actually how I discovered her. And then I said, well, I have oh, to read wow. everything this woman has written. And she's just, I mean, she is, she's in my top three, probably of contemporary authors. Actually. I just, yeah. I, I adore her.
2: And she is so readable. What, it's funny what you saw have kind of got an anthology of, of some of the short stories and there's one that's probably similar to my mum's kind of generation in terms of the time she's speaking about with Jakari game. this girl kind of hitting the ball on the rope with the paddle. And she just, yeah, it, it's a time I didn't even live in, but yeah, I can't, yeah. it's there's just this quality to the writing. that yeah, every sentence is just perfect. I kind of savour every sentence, which I think is really rare. And it's similar with Sarah Waters as well, actually. Yeah.
1: She establishes a sense of interiority um, that I yes, think I've never, yes. I, no one else does. Yeah. Well. I'm like, I'm living inside this person's life, inside this person's head, and that that of yeah. course makes you. It's like the, one of the the you know my most cherished kind of effects of reading, which is that you you know you feel connected to Absolutely. to the character, to the author. You just feel more connected, even though you're sitting on your couch reading a book. And um, she does that better than than anyone I can think of in, in the moment. That's. For me yeah
2: because terrible. that that is fascinating because in the past she goes obviously the points of view change and you like you say you really do feel different ages of people that yep. you're inside the heads of and you really yeah I just thought it's amazing how you can seamlessly flow because sometimes I think kind of one character can bleed into another and you're not always sure who you're reading and which points of view but she does that so effortlessly it's just yeah fantastic
1: yeah, no, that's, well, and I, what I love is that uh, so many of your answers, um, to readers, you know, uh, other writers that are uh, important to you aren't necessarily mystery writers, which I think is so often the case as well. I mean, obviously mystery readers and mystery writers are influenced by, you know, a wide range of authors and, uh, you know, as a writer, there's going to be a lot of formative influences that can fall outside of that. And I think Tessa Hadley in a weird way makes a lot of sense. As yep. a big influence for for a mystery writer, because a lot of what she's doing is what you know makes uh, a mystery uh, sort of stand out. If you can if you can establish, for example, that sense of interiority, or explain a point of view, and you know make it so that you can you know understand why someone committed a murder, <laughs> or, or yeah, you know
2: absolutely. That, you know, yeah. And well, also yeah. the natural world.
0: Sorry, no, go on, go on, Catherine. Oh no, I was just going to say we always talk about. Um, in our episodes, like about how you know one of Christie's favorite authors was Dickens, and mm-hmm. that's not about interiority, but it's certainly about procedure, <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: yeah. And storytelling, just sort of page, page, you know, ability to turn pages, right? Digging yeah, through a lot of pages, but you, but you'd want to turn
2: them. <laughs> a lot of them, <laughs> a yeah, a lot no, of them, <laughs> a lot of pages. <laughs> yeah, I think that kind of page turning thing is is really interesting when you say that about story. And I think that's something that Christy does really well. I think that sense of um, I know some people have sort of spoken about character and how always you don't necessarily get a deep dive into the characters, but I think what she's achieving in terms of plot and the page turn is just is phenomenal I think sometimes now some books I'm reading I think perhaps we have lost a little bit of sense of that storytelling Um, and I think yeah you need that sort of propulsion through the book Um, when you're writing a mystery it's really important absolutely yeah propulsions are really good I
0: mean you know it helped that for example Dickens was getting pretty much paid by the meter (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but, As an incentive. <laughs> uh, it was an incentive, but um but yeah, I do think sometimes um there is there's a kind of school of current books which I will not name names that I'm not a huge fan of which are just very very circular. Mm. And you know, you do lose you do lose a lot of that and I think it's been that's sort of been the mode um
2: really in contemporary fiction for a while now and yeah there's a bit of snobbery with stories sometimes I think which is interesting yeah yes
0: yeah I completely completely agree um but yeah you're you're um you obviously have very good taste Sarah (laughs)
2: Ah, That's 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 so amazing, both of you. Because honestly, it's quite actually, it's it's quite a rare thing. When I've been chatting with people with Tessa Hadley, I have met a few hardcore fans, but not lots. So that's really great. No,
1: and I think that it. I think we've never really quite made that point either. That you know there is this contemporary snobbery when it comes to story, which I think does account for some of you know the belittling that can happen when Christie's name comes up. It's also you know Mm. why I think we had that. Recent spate of autofiction, for example, you know the idea well, being well, stories By is, you know, the way, that
0: was exactly what I was referring to. But like, is it? Yes. Yeah,
1: no, that's it. yeah. It's the, the autofiction craze. I think came from, and you know, a lot of authors that I respect, even um, Zadie Smith. I remember at some point wrote an essay. I don't know where in the times or something where she said mm. you know at this point I find story embarrassing by by the way this was before swing time came out I mean she's still engaging in story obviously <laughs> yeah you know she was saying I it, it there's almost a sense of of embarrassment at the notion of just creating some fake narrative for the purposes yeah. of trying to get at something deeper. And, and for a while, I think people were almost abandoning story and giving up on it and saying, well, I guess I'm just going to record what happened to me in minute detail in my life, because that's <laughs> the only way to, to do anything different now, because story's over. And it's like, no, I don't, I don't think so, because we need to be entertained and, you know, swept up. Yeah. And think, mm-hmm.
2: Particularly at the moment, I think that's actually a really good point. I was chatting with someone else on another podcast about that, that kind of escapism. And they were saying there was a lot of kind of locked room thrillers and those kind of things coming through. But I do think that sense of escapism, I think also there's a danger you leave behind a lot of readers who, yeah, do just want a great story. And so they'll watch great films on Netflix and series. And they, that obviously there's a huge importance on story there. But I think, you know, I've had a few people sort of saying um, about my book and about other books that have that kind of story element. Oh, I've not read a you know a good old fashioned story in a way for a while, and I think yeah, it's a shame if we do forget that you know a lot of people do like reading a good just a good story.
0: I mean, out of curiosity, um, you so you mentioned um, you mentioned Joe Nesbo, and I one of the things that I would point to is that I think that Scandi crime kind of um, repopularized a kind of more traditional mystery novel in a lot of ways, not that they've ever gone out of fashion, they never have, but, but the Scandinavian sort of noir vibe, um, which I certainly, um, love. I mean, like I love Wallander too. Yeah,
2: Yeah, no, I I think that's a really good point because I think, the scandi, I I think in a way it kind of made it cool again. Yeah. It's that know, kind of exactly
0: I yeah. think like I think like Henning and uh Joe Nesbo and company
2: made it cool again. Yeah, no, I really do. And I, I read, um, I remember reading The Ice Princess, one of Camilla Lackbergs. Yeah, and sure. yeah, that kind of, it was just interesting what she did. She had a very kind of friendly character in, in Erica. But I mean, yeah, there was obviously the murderous scenes. And I think you have that kind of, it was a generation of sort of younger authors. And yeah, it just, it, it made it contemporary. I think there's a fresh take on things. Um, and as you say, I think with Nesbo, some kind of, almost some gory moments there, which is uh, sort of evolved away from the sort of golden age, where I think you didn't have those moments moments. But yeah, I agree. I think it did make it something that just was more contemporary and people could relate to.
0: Did that have any influence on your choice of setting when, because we should tell our uh, listeners who have not yet read Sarah's book that um, it's set in the Swiss Alps, um, in the snow. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, um, you know, certainly we're getting, um, um, I'm, I'm from the frozen north myself. So, um, so it very, very much familiar to me. And, um, you know, I, I, there's an element of that here too in yours.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think for me, the. I I I love reading books. I love watching films that are set in the snow. But I think the sort of inspiration. I lived in Switzerland in my kind of twenties, and I I did a degree course in English and creative writing. And kind of I wasn't actually actively writing at the time. I had a job and I was working. But when I sort of lived out there, and we used to travel at weekends to the mountains, I just always kept coming. I'd love to set a story here. It's just the atmosphere. I mean, you have moments on the mountain, as you probably know, where it's 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 a huge snowstorm and the weather's coming in, and it's really scary. I think there's something you're in this huge kind of open landscape but it's also kind of quite claustrophobic when the Mm. mountains are sort of around you and quite dark and yeah I just always thought it'd be a great place for fiction so I think my sort of direct inspiration really came from living out there and we now as a family kind of go quite a few times a year so yeah it's probably a direct inspiration but yeah definitely love reading about sort of books in the snow as well.
0: Yeah, I think that I always um, my mom and I always like to um, we we don't talk about it very frequently. But I was coming back from a doctor's appointment when I was probably in middle school, and we had to go quite far to get to a specialist for asthma, which is also funny given that asthma is a theme (laughs) in your book. Yeah, and um, so we were coming back from an asthma specialist, and a blizzard hit while we were on the highway. (gasps) Oh
2: my! And
0: we. I've never seen my mother that scared in my entire life. What should have? It it was already going to be a two-hour drive. Probably it took us five and a half hours, and we were watching (gasps) um, semi-trucks. I don't know what the I don't know what the the word is in Britain for like a um,
2: like a long haul giant lorry. Yeah, kind of. I think maybe like an articulated lorry, something like that. Like yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: We were we were um, watching them be blown off the road in front of us. Oh, my
2: gosh! that would terrify me.
0: My mom, my mom was trying not to cry and just white knuckling the steering wheel to stay onto oh the road. and my. we I mean, it was one of we actually just to this day barely ever talk about it unless it's like one of the worst experiences ever because the claustrophobia and like the sheer terror of that is so oh bad.
2: That actually makes me feel quite panicky now thinking about that. That's awful.
0: Yeah. So no, until, like, oh. I'm sitting there like, you know, I was like probably 12 or something with an inhaler and like, oh, no. white knuckling while like we're trying to not be blown off the road.
2: I think that's also scary as a child if you see your parents scared, isn't it? I think you kind of look to them as, yeah, not scared by anything. So when you see them scared, it's kind of like, oh, no. <laughs>
0: no and I think like there's a really lovely moment in your book where Ellen's um, flashbacking later to thinking about her mother sitting on a bed. Yes, oh.
2: yeah, yeah. After the, yeah, I won't say too much, but yeah, I know where you are. No,
0: no, we don't want to spoil your book, but I think there's a really nice moment where she's trying to finally process her childhood trauma and remembering that moment. And I think that was really well articulated, Sarah.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it was kind of, I think, yeah, I think as a as a, as a child with you, perhaps, it, obviously lucky enough not to ha- happen to me, but I do know of people that have experienced that. And I think, yeah, if you have that kind of grief, I think as an adult, I think there's probably a pressure, isn't there, to kind of sort of hold it all together. And it perhaps might come out in kind of smaller moments. And yeah, I think that's what I wanted to express.
1: I think I was actually um, just um, dovetailing on on that with uh, um, Ellen, the character, because I was very um, interested in her and and what went into your thought process as to choosing her as your protagonist. And I guess just to set set the scene, so to speak, for those who haven't read the book yet, you know, the the book, of course, takes place in the Swiss Alps. It's at this sort of grand hotel, which used to be a sanatorium, you know, nearly a hundred years earlier. So it has this this potentially dark past and there are you know weather events that are happening so that we have our uh closed circle sort of isolated setting here that we know and love as mystery fans and which is why Catherine and I were very much in our happy place (laughs) you know that makes us sound you know like like we have a psychological condition which perhaps we do um as as we were reading the book but um I, you know, Ellen, technically, uh, your your protagonist here, and we see a lot of the story, not the entire story, but a lot of the story through her eyes. She is um, a police officer, actually, um, you know, which means that technically this is, you know, a piece of crime fiction with a police investigator at its center. Mm-hmm. And yet she is such an unlikely, quote unquote, cop protagonist. Um, yeah. And that felt very intentional, the way that you were, you know, that that you were drawing her as a character. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about that, how you came up with Ellen and the decision to make her um, a police officer with so much backstory and so much baggage about that, that she's bringing into this.
0: We should just mention also for listeners that the reason why she's at this posh hotel in the Alps is she's meeting her estranged brother. That's the yeah. that's the setup to this. Right.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think for me, I wanted her very much to kind of come across, I suppose, as a normal character who just happens to be a cop or a detective. I think lots of the sort of detective fiction I've read, and obviously I've loved her, absolutely, but a lot of it, it kind of, I think, it sort of feels a little bit sometimes by numbers in the sense of how the characters formed. Mm-hmm. So they might have a flaw or a trope in terms of, you know, alcoholism or addiction. But I kind of wanted her just to have a sort of quite a rich interior life. Interesting what we were saying, kind of, with regards to Tessa Hadley and yeah I think having that sort of rich backstory that very much came to me while I, I started sort of forming her as a character and started thinking about who she was and her motivations and I think that book backstory formed and I obviously you don't know everything straight away you're kind of drip fed as we go through the book mm-hmm. but yeah I didn't want her to be that traditional detective figure because I think there is a lot particularly as a, as a female detective. Again, I find when I read, they often take on kind of almost what would be seen as traditionally masculine um, kind of behaviours. And I just wanted her to be sort of very uh, real and open. And I think lots of people who are in various roles, be it a detective or working in office environment, in whatever, how you're working, you perhaps would have those fears and anxieties. But I think when I'm reading books, sometimes it's not articulated in that way and it's either kind of shown through a suppressed emotion which I didn't want to do
1: that makes a lot of sense and I think it it makes for a powerful read because you know we she's not what I also loved about it is that she's she's both not your stereotypical cop protagonist she's also not your stereotypical unlikely uh, unreliable female narrator which is something yeah. that we've seen so so much um, in the last 10 years yeah seriously appreciate
0: seriously appreciated that she's not by the way yeah oh thank you <laughs>
1: <laughs> um she's it's, it's a great it's a great way into, you know, uh and and a, a setting that I think is familiar in the best of ways, especially um from our perspective, because obviously, you know, I think anyone, certainly anyone listening to this podcast who reads your book is going to you know hear and feel the echoes of christie you know just just to name a few we got major shades of the aeromantian boar when we were reading your book which is you know one of the christie short stories in the labors of hercules which actually does take place in an isolated hotel in in the swiss alps and it even involves going up in a funicular which um happens in your book in the beginning and is very sort of yeah. atmospheric it's like you know going past the point of no return which i really, <laughs> really love um, and then of you know, all of her closed circle mysteries most famously, and then there were none. And um I'm curious if you, you know, I mean it it sounds like the kind of that that elemental background, the idea of of just, you know, the ice and the snow overpowering, you know, the humans who the very human drama, you know, that mm. that is sort of centering in your story is is was important to you. Was it important to make the setting isolated in that classic mystery sort of a way? Was that a was that a choice or did it just kind of, you know, yeah. happen?
2: Well, it was interesting. That's actually a really good question because I think the building, the setting itself, it very much was inspired by the, the, an article I'd read about um, sanatorium, kind of the history in the, in the Swiss Alps and in the town we visit in particular. Um, but actually the clinic um, that's kind of still going as a respiratory clinic in Crans Montana isn't actually so isolated, but I very much kind of wanted to put it in that isolated location. I think mm-hmm. as an author and probably as a reader too, there's a real kind of sense of fun, I think, when you know that you're characters have nowhere to go you're putting them and kind of the reader under tension too and I think as a reader it's then really easy for you to put yourself in the character's shoes because I think it's probably a fear of most people being in an isolated setting and there's no way out and there's a killer there and what do you do and I think yeah it it really is as a a writer you're sort of forced to kind of get quite creative with the motives and you know that there is no Swiss police (laughs) there is no one who's going to kind of come in and save the day and I think yeah in the best kind of Christie's like you mentioned, you really do have that sense of what is going to happen next and that fear. And you're sort of pulled along for the ride. So yeah, it was very intentional in that way.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a crucible of a situation, right? I mean, the, the, the tension just sort of ramps up immediately when you know that you can't leave.
2: (laughs) Exactly. It would be my fear. (laughs) You
0: um, You know, it's really funny, Sarah. Um, we had on, um, Oh gosh! Almost a year ago now, we had Ruth Ware on the podcast, and it was prior to One by One being published. Yeah, but um, so we were talking to her not about that. But then when One by One came out in the autumn, um, I just I read that, and then I when I was reading your book, I was like, Oh my gosh, are these um, authors, you know, somehow? predictive because both of those books are both your book and yeah. one by one are set in this isolation and now we've all been in lockdown for so long <laughs> I and I just like, was like I, are, are they witches I mean like, <laughs> I how, how, how did they somehow like somehow know this sense because it's like somehow it feels like there
2: was a zeitgeist because obviously you didn't write this during the pandemic no, absolutely. And I think there's actually a few more that have been set kind of in the, in a similar setting yeah. all at a similar time. So I don't know. <laughs> I think we've tapped into no, some Lu- kind of collective. Lucy
0: yeah, Lucy Foley also. Yep. Right. Yes. So like... Absolutely. <laughs> I just don't know if there's
2: like something in the water. Yeah, absolutely. Well, interestingly, there's always lots of theories about that, isn't there? Of kind of, is, is fiction predictive of things and people kind of spotting a pattern and a trend in fiction in, in things that are happening. So yeah, maybe it's some kind of, we've tapped into a collective subconscious.
0: Fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating though, because it's just, like, obviously they weren't written while we were all in this situation. Now we've no. all been trapped Yeah. Well,
2: I wonder. It's interesting. It's kind of. I think even pre-pandemic, I do think I was chatting about it with. I think it was the the Poison Pen Bookstore. Um, and yeah, I I think there is that kind of sense now. I think the world has been quite unstable, hasn't it? So pre-pandemic, you had obviously you know your political situation, our political situation with Brexit, and I think there was kind of this constant news, um, kind of blasting all the time, which I think is also a product of sort of the digital age. And I think that kind of escape. I've discussed it with a few people are you kind of in a way going back to those locked room mysteries that sense of escapism that finality that always having that answer at the end it's quite a safe space isn't it so I don't know whether maybe it's more of a reflection of you know the news prior to the pandemic but yeah it's a good point
0: Well, there's a there's a point that we always like to make. It's, it's sort of the um, point of why did Golden Age mysteries become so massively popular? And part of the reason probably has to do a little bit with agency, mm. because um, in mystery novels there is a solution at the end of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's um, really significant for a lot of people. It's significant, um, and people when they talk about them as, you know, comforting or whatnot, mm. it's it's not obviously because of <laughs> murder being
2: comforting. It's that the world is made <laughs> full again at the end. Yeah, and I think that's actually such a good point. My daughters now um, are Christie fans, not in terms of reading, they're obsessed with the TV adaptations. (laughs) Obsessed with the TV adaptations. Um, And I think they very much, my daughter, elder daughter, who's 10, and I think, you know, it has been for her, the whole pandemic situation has been, you know, hugely unsettling. They've not been able to go to school, all of those things. And she actually did sum it up. She said, I just like the endings. I like knowing what's happened. And I thought, yeah, that's absolutely it. In a world that's really unstable, Table, having that, yep, we've got all the cast of characters together, and Poros <laughs> going to reveal the solution. It is that it's comforting. It really is comforting.
1: We're all literally sitting, you know, in our pajamas in front of our laptops, pulling our hair out, saying, "What's happening? Like, what exactly. what is happening?" And yes, that is. We are told ex- exactly. We're not even told, as Catherine is saying, you know, we figure out right. Especially if we're active readers, we figure out exactly what's happening, and then we close the book, and that that satisfaction. I think can't be
2: overstated in this time. Yeah, which which we can't have in real life. (laughs) No,
1: no.
0: (laughs) Right, I mean, you know, there's an argument. It's always interesting. There's um, an argument about the gendering of mystery novels. Um, It's really funny because so many mystery protagonists are actually male, but there's a huge argument to be made that the majority, the reason why the majority of mystery readers have historically been women goes back again to that agency thing even in good times because women generally you know don't necessarily have that agency in the real world but when you're reading a mystery you can too be
2: the detective yeah absolutely it's it's flipping it on its head in perhaps a way that society it wasn't traditionally um had that way i think that's a really good point
0: this episode is brought to you by best fiends You know,
1: even though things are beginning to look up, Catherine, I find myself awash with anxiety as much as ever these days, which is why I continue to be so grateful to have a fun, casual game to play like Best Fiends.
0: Oh, absolutely, Comfort. Best Fiends engages your brain without stressing you out, which is exactly what we all need right now.
1: And with thousands of levels to play, one of our listeners told us recently he shot past a thousand, in fact, the fun is practically unlimited
0: and i hope you don't think that i'm gonna do one of these conversations about best fiends without mentioning my beloved howie the lizard i could never do howie like that that would be just terrible so we're still plugging away doing what we do best
1: killing slugs i was gonna say
0: being each other's soulmates but sure killing slugs too
1: So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. I'm always curious, uh, honestly, from a, a writerly perspective, uh, as to choices involving POV point of view. Mm-hmm. And um, given yep. that so much of the book is from Ellen's point of view, you you do break from it at key moments. And I was curious if, when you were, uh, you know, in your planning and outlining stages, if you ever um, intended to do a first person point of view? Or if for just from the get go, you always knew that you wanted to do a close third person POV with key breaks? At, at chemo yeah
2: no that's that's another really good question actually um yeah I think really i I, I did actually play around it's a, it's a good point because I did play around with the idea of first person but I think Ellen is quite intense as a character as it is, and I think when you have that first person you are really really feeling things along with them and I think it would be almost too intense as a reader mm-hmm. I think even now what you said you kind of break away at key points I did because I think as, as a reader, you perhaps lose the impact as well. When you are, you do have a character that's quite um, fragile in some ways and you are sort of hearing and feeling those emotions alongside them. I think if I was to sort of go into first person and just stay with that, I think it could be perhaps overpowering. I think you might lose the kind of rise and fall of the sort of emotional arc of the character as well.
1: I love that. I, I suspected that your answer had to do with character and uh, not with plotting, actually, because I was like, well, maybe because it is difficult to pull off the the first person POV in a mystery, mm-hmm. just because sometimes you you know it's difficult for that one character to have seen everything that needs to be seen. But I was like, I think if she had wanted to do that, she actually could have pulled that off, which is why i i I was very curious as, as to the thinking there. So the, i i that makes a lot of sense, actually. I think with a character like that it can become almost oppressive right if you know Absolutely. because there's so much baggage and you get you you get to have your cake and eat it too with a close third person because we really do get in inside her experience and yet we're not tethered to her for yeah entire story that's that's really smart, uh, you know
2: absolutely and I do think just going back to the plotting bit I just do think it's, it's it's quite nice as a mystery writer as you say you you know you could have made it work with just her but I do think it is nice having key scenes where you are kind of going outside of that you have moments without giving too much away where you have someone ski touring and mm-hmm. that kind of thing and other discoveries and I think it sort of opens up the landscape outside of the hotel a little bit more um as well as obviously then I do similar in the prologue but yeah it's kind of a mixture of both but I really do think that in intensity of having her in first person I think people have found her interestingly quite an intense and controversial character as she stands so I think if it was first person that might have been (laughs) even more controversial Yeah. (laughs) yeah
1: And we've talked about that with Christy that, you know, in the earlier books, a lot of them are from first person. She, you know, very famously had a lot of the Poirot books uh, narrated by Hastings, right, in first person. And there, there sometimes is some awkwardness to, you know, plotting a, a mystery entirely from Hastings's perspective, or, you know, or whatever he misses. And she definitely did move to doing a lot more third person in, in the middle and later stages of her career. And I think that it certainly, um you know, it, 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 smooths over the the rough edges of some of those plotting concerns as well but there is always a way around it you know if you really want yep. to do it you you can usually figure out a way i think so
2: yeah i think it's just an in, sorry go, go, i was just saying, i think also it's kind of an interesting i think as a reader i do like sometimes kind of switching up that point of view and just having a fresh story so even if you're only with that character you know for a few scenes a few chapters it is yeah it's just that point of interest i think is nice that break in a way
1: absolutely Absolutely.
2: She, um, I, I don't think this is particularly a
0: spoiler, but um, Ellen becomes increasingly reckless, really, as the book yep. goes on. And I feel like if that had been the first person, also, you would that would have been a lot to process.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it would be a lot to process, and I think in a way you can kind of keep. Perhaps some of her motivations a little bit opaque, which I really like. But <laughs> again, when I'm reading, I think you know you can have some kind of tearing your hair out moments of why would you do that? But I think it kind of come back, comes back to what I kind of want to achieve with her as a character in this book and in the, the next one. of She's definitely not an unreliable narrator, but you do have that sense sometimes of not always knowing why she's doing things. And I don't think I think almost as a person we don't always know ourselves. And I think she questions again without giving away too much. A lot of her sort of of her past and her memories and yeah I think in first person it's really hard to achieve that because obviously yeah you're you're in that person's head in a, in a different way
0: the only thing that I would say about it is that there is a moment in the sort of um, close to the denouement um, where <laughs> she does one of those horror movie things where I was screaming at the
2: book do not do this. Do <laughs> do not do this I've had a few people saying at that point I was literally screaming (laughs) I'm not sure if it's the same point we're referring to but
0: (laughs) yeah we just we don't want to spoil anything
2: but I was like oh no (laughs) <laughs> just no 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 just don't just don't <laughs> but yeah I think that kind of sense of unravelling a little bit I I, yeah I think it's just fun as well as an author I'll be brutally honest I think there is a sense of fun of plunging a character into something and having them sort of yeah they're unravelling in that situation she is increasingly kind of not knowing who to trust what's going on um, yeah and I think that's really fun to have you know will she pull back from that situation or not but yeah, I won't give away any spoilers as to whether she does or not. No, that's,
1: that's one of my favorite things too. And I think, you know, beyond just the basic um, isolated setting, that was another, um, uh, another connection that I found to, and then there were none, because it's one of my favorite um, aspects of, and then there were none, how you start Mm -hmm. off with, you know, this, this house and it's modern and sparkly and you're on this Island and, and all these people are kind of posturing to each other and, then it just slowly, bit by bit, breaks down, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And it's just you know, until you you essentially have, you know, the nihilism of the of the end. And I wouldn't say that it gets it gets quite to that point in in your book, but there's a similar kind of breakdown of, uh, you know, the miniature society that you're creating here in this very posh. Sort of <laughs> environment and I love seeing that just go just get go to tatters.
2: I, <laughs> I do too. It was hugely fun.
0: <laughs> well, but for both of you, do we think that the modernism is also like uh, somehow responsible for this? because in both of Edda Radan and Sarah in your book, it is <laughs> like stark <laughs> modernism that is at the center of the architectural drama.
2: Well, yeah, it's a really fascinating thing. And linking back to the pandemic, I read a really, when I was researching and, and just after, I, was, I read a really interesting article about say hang, how does architecture respond to um, things that were going on so obviously modernism directly influenced by the kind of sanatorias throughout Europe and, and elsewhere and that kind of idea that we want everything clean and kind of uh, lots of clean lines and big windows etc and they were saying kind of is that gonna, is, it has the pandemic will that change architecture and kind of now going forward you had the self cleaning doorknobs we're hearing about and all these kind of things and I do think there's a kind of in a way I find somehow sort of clinical things quite horrifying and I think it probably taps into my dark fears of hospitals for very various, various reasons and I think yeah I think that sort of clean lines and the, and the modernism I think it can be aesthetically very appealing but I think yeah it, there is something quite cold about it and I think the idea of as, uh, as Kevin mentioned kind of bringing that back to um yeah putting that to tatters is is quite satisfying so there might well be a link
1: <laughs> yeah and it's almost what I also love that you you did in your book which um know for me reminded me of of some horror tropes actually some horror movie tropes is that it's not only that it's you know the this hotel has this modernist look of you know the 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 clean lines and the open spaces which you know can just very quickly turn into a nightmare as it does Mm. but there's also this sense that you know when the hotel was being designed that the architects incorporated its past into the design very specifically whereby they're actually displaying you know pieces from the the sanatorium that used to be and there's something about the arrogance of that and sort of the just the the hubris of oh you know like hey take a look at this weird instrument of Mm -hmm. you know that was that was used to potentially you know (laughs) cure maybe torture a you know an an ill person 100 years ago isn't it
2: actually they never actually put them on display though right yeah, no, they, there are elements throughout the hotel, actually, where, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry, you do have them kind of in a glass box. And I actually, I I think now it's quite interesting when you have kind of a, a distance from a certain time period. I do think it, the idea I, I'd actually was, again, it's research for the book. Um, I mentioned in the book about um, a kind of couple that were found on a glacier um, years after they went missing mm-hmm. the glacier retreat and they were found. And there was some really quite, I thought, quite intrusive photographs um, that was put online about that and I think it's interesting and there recently been some some in Pompeii as well showing kind of human remains and I think when you have almost like a certain distance from time people kind of feel it's up for grabs to kind of display things and talk about it in a way you wouldn't do with a kind of contemporary tragedy Uh, yeah and I think there's an interesting there's almost a human appetite in a way for something that you kind of can look at because oh it's so far away that it doesn't matter Um, and I think that's the point one of the characters sort of makes later in the book yeah it's kind of sort of looking the other way and yeah using it for your own ends, which, yeah, it's interesting.
1: Well, it's that idea that, you know, you know in a horror movie, and for some reason the, the one I'm thinking of is the original Poltergeist, right, which is this idea that you're, you're building over something that you should not be desecrating, and you yeah. know as an, you know, uh, an, an audience member in that movie that the, the characters are going to have to pay, for what they did, somehow, mm. because that that's just not going to fly in a, in a horror story. And I think you get that creeping sense in your book too that the the arrogance of this design and you know putting those things on display in those little glass cases, you know, very yeah. quickly we realize that someone's very angry about that and they're yeah. they're going to have to pay for that. So it's just this this added little kind of um, you know it, it's like a horror for forsook that kind of just reverberates yeah. throughout the story that I I really really loved. Um oh, thank you. It really added to the the atmosphere, I think, that you were creating. Yeah,
2: I think that I think that sorry, Kathy, I was just say that I think that suppression of the past, I think it I wanted it to very much to link in with sort of Ellen's internal landscape as well of and how she is feeling, and that's constant suppression of the past. But I agree. I think that kind of sense that you're yeah, trying to build over or sort of push something away. But I just love the idea, like you say, it is a kind of classic horror thing that no matter what you do, it's always there bubbling away. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's not gonna it's not gonna go away, and it's and it's no. part of the mystery though because it is a long time ago. I mean, the the past, the 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 whole history of the sanatorium is basically a hundred years ago, and the characters yep. even say that they're like, yeah, but that was so long ago. Who would still be angry about that? It's not like mm. this just happened twenty years ago. So it happened to some person who's now running around killing people. Like, how does this? And it's true. It truly is a mystery, and you you know uh, solve that mystery. in, a, I thought a, a very satisfying way. So.
2: Oh, thank you. Sorry, Catherine, I I realised that.
0: I was going to say that, I mean, there's like an interesting point that it's not not so much explicitly made in it, but they're burying the archive of it. The archive is locked in a room. And Mm. I mean, I do wonder about that just in general, like in society. And I think it was an interesting concept that the majority of the archive and that's sort of one of the arguments... Um, against one of the characters that he never intended to make it available.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that sense, I think it, That the idea that you can kind of not forget something, but kind of, yeah, it's the bearing of it. I think of kind of contemporary parallels with regards to the Holocaust and various things. And I think that sense of needing to keep history alive, it was interesting where you mentioned we have the characters kind of saying, but it was so long ago. I do think we're in a society where everything's changing so quickly. I don't think I can even keep pace of, you know, technology and how things have changed. And I do really worry about kind of past events for my children. Will things get forgotten in that way and I think yeah that kind of archive I I'm, I'm someone who likes kind of storing things and having things set and yeah it was quite important for me to kind of pull out was that archive ever going to be made available or was that right. kind of just lip service yeah. yeah
0: I mean I think one of the things um I've been reading um for whatever reason, probably because I've been locked inside for so long, I've been reading a bunch of um, Holocaust nonfiction, new Holocaust nonfiction books, mostly Mm -hmm. about women. And there's one, it's coming out um, soon. It's called The Light of Days. Um, But it's about the Polish courier girls. Oh, wow. And um, it was just buried in in some, I think, I think, the author just found it, I don't know if it was in the British Library, um, but in England, she just found these accounts in Yiddish that just, and they had been translated and they'd been widely published in like the UK after the war. And then they had just Mm. fallen out of print forever
2: and forgotten. Oh, that makes me go a little bit shivery in a way. The idea that, yeah, something so, yeah. oh,
0: And so, I mean, and they played like, a massive role in like the Warsaw ghetto uprising and other things. And they're just disappeared to history because they were just buried in an archive. And I actually found that oddly haunting, not just there's, we'll just say that the room that the archive is buried in, in your book has another secret in it. (laughs) Yeah. Not going to spoil it, it has another secret.
2: big secret, secret. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: um, but um, I, for some reason, I found the burying of the history in it um, haunting as well.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think that idea that yeah, things people, yeah, I think I think over time uh, memories do change, and I think people's responses and yeah, just hearing my own daughter's experience of how things are taught in schools are different because that generational connection. When I talked about the war, I could directly reference my grandfather and his experiences, and our children can't do that. And I think the idea that you know that might potentially be suppressed or not be remembered is is kind of terrifying for me. I think it's probably a really per Personal thing. I'm very obsessed with kind of printing off photographs and having that material. Yeah, and I think having that, not having that one day, is hugely terrifying. I was also my own research, without giving away too many spoilers about kind of uh, the plot at all. But yeah, there's. I found some. Am- awful, awful um, articles, amazing in one way, around kind of the treatment of women. in, in, in These weren't tuberculosis sanatoria, they were different ones. But um, yeah, they were amazing archive material that's, that again has been found about how, you know, women were sent off to these institutions often and kind of only on the, the whim of their kind of doctor or, or, or male guardian. And again, I was horrified. The stories of all of these women who were you know, perhaps locked up for 30 or 40 years. And yeah, you didn't really hear from them again. And I found that horrifying. Just the ideas that these lives were almost wiped out in a way. Scary.
0: I mean, I think that there's a real sense. Um, I'm trying to do this without spoiling anything. Um, there is...
2: <laughs> I'm sure you can do a few spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> there's,
0: there's a real sense that women's histories are erased even with contemporary women Mm. in your book. Yeah. And I think that that's the the unsettling thing about this like, you know, secret archive room is that Mm. that is what a lot of the trauma in the book is about. It is about women's narratives being erased.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think the the history element I mentioned was, I just found really, really powerful. But I think there are sort of still some parallels. I think women are often and not it's not always women I think it can be men too but I think women can be kind of held up and judged to a sort of standard by not just by men but by other women too and I think it's kind of I think we're categorized in some ways and I think when women perhaps become mothers or you evolve in life often your sort of very interior life um, can be forgotten and I think yeah women's stories in general I don't think women are sometimes heard And I think one of the things I wanted to get through with Ellen is because women perhaps communicate in a different way and it's Experiences I've had in the work life and in personal life. I think women's stories and just women's voices can be dismissed um, we're seen as perhaps too emotional or you're saying something in an emotional way and I don't think we're always heard because of that because it isn't a traditionally sort of male way of communicating which perhaps is more factual and I, I think you've got the characters around Ellen actually responding to that and it's interesting even her own sort of partner has sort of struggles with with when she speaks quite openly emotionally um, yeah and that was something I wanted to explore as well Well,
0: I mean he is an architect I'm like I have spent some uh, time around architects like a significant <laughs> amount of time around our Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, that's kind of a thing. <laughs> so, Intriguing. No, no, I'm not, I, I like, the fact that he doesn't pick up on some of her emotional cues is perhaps not surprising. <laughs> I
2: like that, that's right. <laughs>
1: no, I also, I think that even in a more general sense, like so many stories, I think that your story is, um, you know, on a deeper level underneath the mystery preoccupied with storytelling, right? I mean, I think so many stories are just about how we tell stories. And, you know, there is, there's that notion that who, who controls the story, who gets to tell the story, how much of the story gets told, you know, how much do we pick and choose? There's obviously, you know, um, some some retelling or even warped storytelling that's going on vis-a-vis the sanatorium and what happened in the mm. past, um, you know, as that story is being told by the the designers of the hotel and the proprietors of the hotel. But then, you know, there's Ellen herself who's, who's grappling with her own story and, you know, re- recent events in the past that happened to her, won't get more into that because I don't want to spoil, but, you know, she really needs to figure out what, you know, what, actually happened to her and, and what that mm-hmm. means and, and, you know, how she's going to move forward given what's happening in this very story. So it's just, you know, I think like the best of stories, there's just, there's, there's a lot going on <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, once you start thinking about it. So um, I, you know, thank you for, for providing a story that has so much to chew on as a reader.
2: And, <laughs> oh, thank and you. Can we safely say that there's going to be a sequel? yeah most definitely it's actually first draft is already written so um Um, yeah I'll be working on that one (laughs) but yeah Yeah, we kind of leave on a bit of a cliffhanger yeah
0: I was I was gonna say otherwise the book kind of ends on a note where I (laughs) was upset if there was not going to be another one
2: (laughs) yeah no I think Ellen and kind of that what Kemp was saying then actually about the story I think yeah I think she has more to say really (laughs) I think that idea of sort of her does she trust herself and her memory really sort of comes to the play in in the next textbook. So yeah, it'll be a continuation. <laughs>
1: That's fantastic. Well, we we can't let you go without asking you um just uh at least two Christie focused questions. I'm. I'm just curious if you have a favorite Christie. We just. We just have to ask it.
2: Oh, it's actually so hard because I think it also depends if you. I. My kind of Christies are really woven into the TV adaptations as well, and That's kind of fun. what my favorites are. But I. I absolutely love. I think probably one of my favorites is Death in the Clouds. And when we were talking before about kind of isolated settings, I don't think you could have anything more <laughs> isolated than that. I really love the kind of um, idea that there isn't there. even. Even in my book, I think. Eat, yep, you're isolated, you have the avalanche, but you're not always quite sure who was there and when. And I think in that one, you have a comp- something that's so, so closed off. And I, I have to say, a few of them, I've had ideas. That one confounded me <laughs> and, and absolutely did. And I think there's so many kind of nice moments um, just from the TV adaptation. I loved just uh, Poirot's facial expressions, but I think it, his kind of indignancy comes across in the book as well. That sort of <laughs> being a suspect. Um, yeah, just loads of key moments. I, I really didn't guess. And I think, yeah, the ending, I presume I can give away spoilers here because everyone's (laughs) well read. I love the idea of the dentist coat and the steward. Everything was just perfect. And I had no idea. And and a few I have.
1: I was, no, You know, it's really funny, um, Sarah, but I was, in, in preparing to talk to you, I was trying to think of the other Christies that have extremely isolated settings because, mm. you know, we, we talk about this. Sometimes people um, confuse locked room mysteries with closed circle mysteries, and locked room yeah. is a very specific thing. And Christy yeah. does do that occasionally. But, you know, closed circle doesn't necessarily require absolute isolation. Often it can just be, you're in a country house, and probably yeah. no one drove up in the middle of the night and scaled a wall. And we don't but have they to. They could, yeah. They could have, but and maybe occasionally that actually is a solution. But we usually don't have to worry about that. But mm. you know, the I I, I was kind <laughs> I of. I can listing, think of
0: one particular case. <laughs> oh,
1: kind of her her best, you know, pure isolation books, and the the a lot of the obvious ones are, and then there were none. Um, you know, I think. Cards on the Table, Evil mm-hmm. Under the Sun, Towards Zero, but Death in the Clouds was, was another one and we it's funny we haven't ranked it that high. It's not one of our highest ranked. Mm-hmm. Um but it it is actually in terms of an isolated setting uh definitely one of the best that she created and quite early too when air travel was still, you know, a, a little bit of a novelty. So I I I do commend her for for the setting. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I think for me that that the idea of being it's probably again taps into a few of my own fears of being on a plane. And yeah, yeah you, there is there is nowhere to go is that <laughs> I think in any other setting there's always perhaps room for escape. You could run around in my book, perhaps you could run off towards the woods, something could happen. But I think right. being on a plane, I think it's a really kind of clever, clever, clever idea. Yeah.
0: It also has one of the um best of the um, Tom Adams Fontana covers. Um I don't know, Sarah, if you've ever seen it, but it is a real delight. Oh no, I haven't. How how would you describe? Um, I would describe it as a giant, giant wasp attacking. Oh, I love the wasp. <laughs> <laughs> Um so uh no, no, I'll take I'll take a ph- I'll take a photograph of my
2: cover. So oh, yeah, I'd like to see that. I have to say I do love book covers. It's a big fascination for me and how they change with the Harry Potter ones as well. I love the new illustrated editions. I've shown my daughter some of the older ones. I love it.
1: <laughs> and it very famously, that cover very famously inspired a Doctor Who episode that features Agatha Christie as a character.
2: Oh, I didn't know uh, that. Oh, yeah. that's an interesting fact. I like yeah. that. <laughs>
1: Um, And then I'm just curious, do you have a preference between uh, Poirot and Marple?
2: Uh, it's a bit of an easy one actually I do like Marple but I have to say Poirot I just yeah and again it is probably influenced by the David Suchet adaptations Um, yeah it's the shame because I can't really read without seeing him as a character but yeah I just I love there is definitely humour in Marple but I think in Poirot I just yeah just love everything about him as a character I love the fastidious the kind of all of his traits just yeah it's really evocative and again seeing my children's responses to him as a character yeah tells me just how great a character he is and I think he will go down in in history
0: (laughs) I'm just delighted by the fact I I came across Christy originally like sitting on my mother's lap like you know watching the Suchet adaptations and then I and then and then I read I read Nancy I was like an early reader so I read Nancy Drew as you did also and then the first things I pulled off the shelves were all my mother's like paperbacks from like the 70s um of Christie, and um but it was totally because
2: of the Suchet series yeah he how I I said when you watch them now and even some of the earlier ones because I think when you have um uh, Jap in them as well you, you really and Hastings going back to and Jap as well you really and Miss Lemon you really, there's a real humour there obviously as the books progress it gets darker as well and seeing my children's faces respond to I'd say it's just very theatre acting in a way I mean it's just the movement of the eyebrow a twitch of the mouth actually properly laughing and this was my kind of daughter age six my youngest she's eight now so watching the first one seeing her reaction I said that it's just amazing acting and Miss Lemon just her expression and even the hair, it's just perfect.
0: Oh. so delightful. We did um, our last episode that we just um, put out was The Clapham Cook, which is the first episode oh, of the series. And um, Kemper and I just went on and on about like, because I hadn't watched the episode in years. Yeah. And... Um, it's, such, it's so well set up and they're so particular and the idea that children right now could be watching that and still be delighted by it, just like it warms my heart. Oh, Sarah, you have
2: no idea but there is so much humor isn't it in those yeah. early ones it's just yes. yeah just yes. beautiful I just think the magical uh, interactions between them and and when they go on to meet Jap you yeah oh it's just amazing and yeah she she kind of even has even dressed up as as Poro. that's the sort of mild obsession their work through but unfortunately we only get a few episodes kind of dropped onto our so kind of our streaming thing at a time so yeah they've had, they feed they go jump from series to series but they love it <laughs>
1: That's so I think if if your entry point to Christie is the David Suchet series, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, Poirot is always going to be beloved. And I feel like you were slightly apologetic when you said, oh, you know, my my entry point or, or a lot of the way I've consumed Christie has been through the series. But I think that's I mean, that's such a common thing. And, it, and it's, um, you know, especially, I think, and this is really coming off of our adulation of the Suchet series from the Adventure of the Clapham Cook episode, but he was, you know, he was so anchored to the text and he took such care with what he was doing in that series that I think it, it provided this, you know, the, this kind of like robust alternate path to Christie that so many people have, have taken up. I think, especially in the UK and and the US as, as well, I'm sure around the world, I know it's distributed everywhere around the world, but Um, that's such a common um, you know, story, I think, for people. And it's and it's fantastic because it's it, it truly is, you know, part of the the quote unquote Christie verse that we talk
0: well, about. Well, also by the way, can we ask you? You can um you can um say nothing, but um do you have fantasy casting for Ellen?
2: Ooh, I don't, this is, a, people have asked me this quite a few times, actually. I have to say, I don't, I, I the, the creation of Ellen in my head, I'm, I'm a real kind of scrapbooker. So when I'm writing, I kind of pull out lots of things from magazines and yeah, it kind of, she's, she's a little bit ever, ever evolving. So no, I don't have a fixed person. She's sort of very much probably in a similar way to when you read, you have an idea, don't you, of how someone looks in your head. So there's probably not someone I would say now that's absolutely an Ellen. No, so...
1: Is there a film, uh, in, in the works or is it still early days?
2: I think probably still early days, actually.
1: Well, I I have no doubt that, that uh, there will be something, uh, Oh, thank you. Or at least I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to watch oh. that story.
2: Yeah, it would be amazing. I think one of the interesting things to me would be the hotel because it has been interpreted differently on the UK and US book covers. And it's interesting. A few readers have kind of said, oh, neither of were quite how I imagine. And obviously we're showing the old building on the covers as opposed to the new hotel. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it would be interesting to see how that would play out.
1: Absolutely. Extremely cinematic. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Definitely. Great.
1: Well, this was such a delight uh Sarah being being able to, I almost called you Ellen by the way I almost just said, <laughs> I like Ellen,
2: interchangeable wow. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <It's good. laughs> it really was was delightful sitting down with you I mean I you know and and the 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 fact that you were able to identify you know an, another writer that Catherine and I are both passionate about that we haven't even discussed I I I'm I'm floored by that we're gonna oh. have to go gush over Tessa Hadley now
2: I, think. I know that was amazing for me because oh, generally yeah. I don't meet loads of fans so <laughs> (laughs) tessa hadley so it's a really lovely surprise (laughs) both of you as well
1: thank you so much for for sitting down with us and we obviously you know we we can't wait for the sequel very happy to hear that there's already a draft very
2: excited sarah
1: eagerly awaiting it (laughs) um we hope to talk again
2: oh brilliant thanks so much for having me i've really enjoyed it
1: Well, Catherine, that conversation with Sarah was truly, truly lovely.
0: Oh, she could not have been more of a delight. And, you know, we're looking really forward to her sequel. She mentions it in the podcast, but, you know, we got official notification afterwards and we're very excited for that.
1: We have every hope of it being as much of a bestseller and a nail-biter as the first one was. And it's really exciting when I think a new author enters the scene and it makes me feel really good about the years to come during which we can enjoy Sarah Pierce novels along with all of the many other contemporary authors who we rely on, you know, <laughs> year after year um, absolutely for new content. It's hugely important now more than ever.
0: And we are going to look forward to talking to her in the future as well.
1: Yes, big friend of the podcast from this point forward. So that was our special interview episode. And in our next episode, we will be covering a Poirot short story. We do still have a few of those left. I love being able to revisit our dear Belgian detective in short story form. We'll be covering an early Poirot too. It is The King of Clubs. So very much looking forward to that. And then our next novel is also a Poirot novel, just in case you want to do some reading ahead of time, that would be The Clocks. Much more to come. And in the meantime, you can always reach out to us via email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can also find bonus content on our Patreon site. That's www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. We are on Twitter at All About the Dame. Catherine is on Twitter at Robcat. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. Our Instagram handle is at All About Agatha. And we would love it if you would give us a rating and or a review if you have not yet done so. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.